I want my children to have hard times under a controlled environment because the day will come when they're going to have hard times, trials, afflictions, and need to learn how to endure in an uncontrolled environment. Y'all follow me? That's why we give them an allowance under a controlled environment so they know how to handle their money when it just comes in and they get to do with it what they want. So they don't go spend it at the buckle instead of paying rent. In Isaiah chapter 53, I ask you a question. Do you think God loves Jesus? And the answer we all believe is yes. But I want to read you something about Jesus. And this is, we're going to come back to this, but I want to lay this out there. What the Bible says in Isaiah 53, talking about our Savior. And I'm just going to read through it. I'm not going to read all of it. But I want you to just hang with me and think about these words as it describes our Savior. Verse 1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. King James said he was despised and rejected by men. The King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who according to John chapter 1 spoke everything into existence. Literally said, let there be light and the sun happened. But he was rejected by people. Verse 4 says, yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains and we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. When we talk about Jesus bearing our burdens and bearing the weight of sin, we were talking about that this morning. It's just, just, this has just been really on my heart. I want to share it with you. Our brain immediately goes to the point of Calvary. That What that means is, is he bore them on the cross. And that's true. But it's incomplete. He's been carrying the weight of mortality, sickness, humanity that he didn't need to his entire earthly life he carried that with him he carried the weight of temptation he carried the weight of sickness according to this look at it again in verse 4 it says he bore our sickness and he carried our pains and we in turn regarded him as stricken by God in other words we looked at him for bearing our stuff we looked at him and said oh God's had enough with him he, we, we, we counted him as being punished. But what was really happening was as he was carrying our stuff. Verse 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, cr crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We, <laughs> that's, a whole, that's a whole series on that one verse. We all, verse 6, went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Have you ever taken the punishment for somebody else? Maybe at work, as a kid, in a family, and you're like, you just, and maybe you felt unfairly punished. I always hated that when I was growing up when one kid in the class would do something and everybody got punished. Basketball teams do that all the time. When I was growing up playing basketball, 
There was always that one dude that just would not do what he was supposed to do, and we all had to run for it. I hated that dude. And I remember thinking how unfair and unjust, right? That's just not fair. I did what I was supposed to do, and I've still got the punishment. Anytime we start feeling that way, I want us to go back to this text. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep shot, I can't say this, a sheep silent before his shearers. Whew. Peter Piper's got nothing on that one. And he did not open his mouth. Verse 8. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich man at his death because he had, no, he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. But here's the verse. Oh, here's the verse I want you to cue into this morning. Isaiah 53.10. Look what it says. And yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. I want you to let that soak and marinate in your heart for just a second. Remember, we started this talking about, do you think God loves him? Of course he does. He loves Jesus like he loves me and you, right? And as a matter of fact, he loves us enough. He allowed Jesus to become all of these things so that you and I could have a relationship with him, right? That's what we believe. That's what the Bible teaches. That's our hope, right? And yet we, have, we, we walk into our earthly life a lot of times thinking the best thing that we could possibly think of to produce, to, to show love to our progeny, to our children, to our family, is to make sure they never have a bad day. But according to the Word of God, the Bible says it pleased God to crush Jesus. Think about that for just a second. Now, somebody who's out there might be thinking, what a twisted guy God is. But can I put a little bit of a spin on it to help us understand? You could add out to the front of verse 10, because he loved you so much, it pleased him to crush God, to crush Jesus. He loved you and me so much. It pleased him, not that Jesus was crushed, it pleased him that we could all be a part of what he was doing. And so, as we look this morning at what it means to endure, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind and we'll be back and go back to Hebrews chapter 5. We talked a couple of Wednesday nights ago about some of this. We touched on it, and I'm going to use it as a springboard this morning in Hebrews chapter 5, and I'll just read the text as we get started. In Hebrews chapter 5, we'll go to verse 7. The Bible says, during his earthly life... Now, let me pause for a second. Look right up here. Let me, let me lead you through the first six verses for sake of time. The first six verses of Hebrews chapter 5 are really simply just making the case of why Jesus was the high priest, what the scriptures would call by the order of Melchizedek, which means he was the, he was the ultimate high priest, okay? He was... It, if you look back even in verse like 5 and 6, where God says, you're my son, today I become your father. You are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to go into what it means to have Melchizedek and the priest of Salem. That's a whole other educational thing. You need to study that on your own. But suffice it to say that Jesus in this text is being presented as the apex priest relational guy with God. Okay, he's it. Now look in verse 7. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals 
with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now look right at me. Jesus, we have this European picture of him sometimes painted on our, on our walls and things, that he just walked around in this little shell of peace. And that nothing ever befell him until he got to the cross. According to Hebrews 5, even in this one little verse, he spent his earthly life offering prayers, appeals. Why? Because he's a priest. That's what priests do. If you understand the Old Testament idea of priest, the people of Israel had sinned before God. And therefore, they, were, they stood condemned before God. And so what would happen is the priest would make uh, sacrifice for them. And actually, he would make sacrifice for himself first because he was just a dude too and needed forgiveness. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for the people for their sin. And he would, they would do that, make that appeal towards God. In his earthly ministry, it says, Jesus did those things with tears and loud cries. To who? To the one who was able to save him from death. This is the creator God of the universe who spoke life into existence, who has the power of life and death in his hand, is appealing to the one that can save him from the death that he's carrying in his flesh. I'm going to bring you back to this in a minute, but then it says in verse 8, Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Don't... Did y'all catch that? If you were here a couple Wednesday nights ago, you, you, you remember we talked about this. Have you ever thought about Jesus, the, the righteous lamb, son of God, needing to learn anything? We have in our minds that from the day one that Jesus just knew everything about who he was. Do I think there was an awareness of that over time? I absolutely do. And as evidenced by the story we talked about when he was 12, when he said, I got to be about my father's business. But according to this text, in his humanity, he was all God and all man, in his humanity, that humanity that was carrying around the weight of our sin, the weight of our destruction, the, the stripes that we deserved, the sickness and our sorrow, it says that he learned obedience from what he suffered. Not from what he was intellectually ascending to, not, be, not from what he was taught academically, but he learned obedience through suffering. That's so significant. Verse 9. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. How did he get perfected? He suffered. He went to the cross and he suffered and he died his ultimate uh, the culmination of his suffering after that was complete it says he became salvation verse 10 and he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek what I want to really point out to you this morning is I want to reframe what it means to endure I do not want you to run out like the monks used to do or, or, or some persuasions would do and just seek every negative bad thing you can possibly find to make happen to you so that you can go, look, God, I'm suffering. That's not what I'm saying because that's not what the text is saying. But I do want to encourage you because things are going to make you feel like you're suffering. 
I was telling someone this week a lot of times, and we're going to talk a little bit more in here in just a second. When we think about persecution and trial and affliction, we often immediately, our brains go to the, the really bad things. Death. Um, I like to, to, you know, the thugs coming in and threatening our lives or our, or our well-being because of our belief in Christ. You know, we have security teams. We think about those sorts of things. But if you've lived very long, you understand that there's plenty of suffering to go around that has nothing to do with large cataclysmic events. There's plenty of suffering that goes about that we bring on ourselves every day. There's plenty of suffering that comes to us by no fault of our own because somebody else makes a dumb decision. There's plenty of suffering that comes to us simply because we live in a broken world that yearns and longs for their creator and its creator to come and make things right. I think of suffering sometimes as just standing up and doing the right thing and people hating you for it. Maybe they don't do anything to you. They just don't love you. They talk bad about you. They won't be your friend. They won't be your spouse. They won't let you have the job. Little things like that, but when they pile up, that's rough. Jesus carried the marks of our suffering through his whole life. And friends, you and I have to carry the marks of our own suffering, don't we, too? Y'all ever had a really bad day? And I don't just mean that you slept late and your car was out of gas. I mean, have you ever had one of those days where you're not really sure how you're going to get to bedtime? You ever had one of those weeks when your family is falling apart before your very eyes and you're not exactly sure how to deal with it? You ever had one of those weeks where uh, I know somebody uh, that, that, that is close Within a matter of a couple weeks, lost three family members. There's going to be hard times, so what do we do? That's the question I'm posing to you this morning is, what do we do? I want you to look in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 5. I don't have slides for this, so just go with me in your Bible. It says, we have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. So he says, <laughs> he says I've got all this stuff I want to tell you about how Jesus learned obedience and what it did for him and what it means for him to be the priest by the order of Melchizedek and how he provides salvation and hope for you. He says, i got a lot of things to tell you about that, but I can't tell you because you dull, you're lazy. So in answering the question, how do we endure? What does it mean? The first thing I wrote down was we have to work. Enduring means Absolutely. Enduring means that the suffering doesn't necessarily go away, but that we're able to stand up under it. How do we do that? The first thing he says is, look here, the, the indictment of this is, that they were immature and lazy. Look at verse 12. He says, Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. Can I put it to you in a, in a, in a, in a more modern setting? He's, let's just say he's talking to a junior in high school and he says, Bro, you ought to be in Algebra 2, but you're still on third grade math. You ought to be reading novels, and instead, you're still doing phonics. That's what he's saying there. 
He says, because you've been lazy, you ought to be teachers. Now, I understand that 2 Timothy 2, 2, the basis of our ministry is that he says to go and to learn what you have, teach it to others so they can repeat it. That's what we talk about. Everybody has that mandate. And yet in James 3, he says, not many of you should be teachers. How do we reconcile those two? Well, James is talking in James 3, not everybody should stand in an official leadership capacity that's standing up here teaching. Because in that text, he says, because we have double judgment. So I always tell people as a pastor, I tell people, say, be careful. Be careful when you want to draw and quarter your leadership. Because the Bible says they have double the judgment that you do if you're not in that spot when they stand before God. So let them carry that weight with the, with the, with the, the mantle that they have with the weight that it deserves. And maybe we should be happy that we're not carrying it. In our home and in our, in our relationship with my wife, we have a, I believe, it's a very biblical relationship. She has her mind of her own. She has lots of opinions. And, uh, but at the end of the day, if a decision has to be made and we disagree, and we've only done this maybe three or four times in 26 years of marriage, I may have to make the call because that's my role. And you know what she tells young mothers and young wives? who get in a little bit of a tizzy about the fact that maybe because the man's considered the spiritual head of the household and it rubs their sensibilities wrong and that he's got to carry that burden and it kind of makes them feel like they're being put upon. You know what my wife tells them? She goes, I love it. Because she goes, I get to remove myself from that place of responsibility. And if he's going to mess it up, he's going to mess it up. Now she's going to support, but she says, hey, I don't want to take on a decision that's not mine to take. Because I don't want to carry the responsibility if I make it wrong. Not that she's not willing, but I'm talking about in those times where it comes down to really intense things and somebody's got to make a decision. But he says in this text, you need milk, not solid food. I mean, I don't, you can't give an 18-month-old a sirloin and just say, good luck. I guess you can, but they're probably not going to get a lot of nourishment, are they? And he's lamenting the fact, he says, I've got all these great truths to tell you, and I can't even tell you because you've gotten so lazy in your pursuit of God, you're dull in your understanding, you need milk and not meat. Then he says in verse 13, Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. I guess one of the questions I would ask you this morning is simply this. What kind of food are you eating? If we're talking about what it means to endure, I would ask you, how are you preparing to endure? Are you drinking milk or are you eating meat? And sometimes meat is hard to swallow. Sometimes meat's a little tough. It's a little grisly. And you've got to work at it. It's not easy. But look what it says going on. He says in verse 14, But solid food is for the mature. For those, here's, catch this phrase, For those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. What does it mean to be trained? Anybody? How do you train? What you got, brother? Give me an example. So you're, say your, your friend is having problems with the Okay. And you're training him how to climb. Okay. Basically, you're telling him how to do it. 
Okay. Did y'all hear that? Dude, thank you. That's, that's good stuff. You have a friend who doesn't know how to climb, and you do, and so you're going to teach him how. You're going to tell him how. Maybe you show him how. But for him, the training comes in. He's got to get up on the wall and climb. Right? He can't just sit out there and analyze what it might look like to climb, what it would feel like if I got to the top. If he wants to learn to climb, he's got to climb. This passage says, For those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. And the only way that I can tell you how to do that is you get in this book and you just get in it and... If you know it, if you don't, if you can't figure it out, you ask somebody that does, and you got to figure out what we would call. Go ahead, Tim. You got something? They analyze, but they're afraid to fall, so they never do. Ooh. Okay. If you didn't hear that, he's going back to the wall climbing analogy. Somebody who stands out on the outside and analyzes it, they may think they know how to, but they're so afraid of falling, they never actually climb, so they didn't actually get trained in the first place. They know a lot about. Climbing, but they couldn't climb their way out of a paper bag because they've never done it. How many Christians today know a lot about Jesus, know a lot about what it means to endure, but can't endure because they've never been practiced in enduring? We know a lot about Jesus and following Him, but we don't do it well because we don't do it at all. That's why I say to people, the last thing some professing Christians need today is another Bible study. In fact, what would be better is just to start obeying what we already know, and then we'll learn some more later. We can have all the head knowledge in the world and still be babies on milk. Because remember, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish people. They knew the stories. Every Sabbath, they were reading the Law and the Prophets. They knew all of this stuff. And yet he says, you're babies. I think the Western church today is plagued with infants. How does an infant become mature? Starts got to grow. First starts off with humble. I always tell people this. If you don't have somebody that's pouring into your life and helping you to walk with the Lord and to help you to grow, you need to find someone. If you don't know who that is, go to one of your deacons, one of your leaders, and say, I need someone to disciple me. Either you do it or find me somebody, but I need help. That takes humility. First, to understand and recognize that I am an infant and I need to grow. If you're not an infant and you're mature, you need to be looking around for someone you can pour your life into. Because I want to tell you something. I don't know if this is in the end times or not. I have no earthly clue. And I will tell you, even the brightest scholar in the world is only guessing. But I do know this. It's not getting easier to endure as a Christian. It's not. And we, if we want our children and our grandchildren to be able to endure, we're going to have to let them do some things that are hard. We're going to have to not be afraid to throw them into the Christian mess. One of the biggest fights I ever had as a pastor was our youth pastor one time, instead of going to youth camp, he took our students down into Houston, into the wards, and they worked at a Salvation Army feeding homeless people for a week, and it was sketchy. I mean, it was sketchy. And there was, it was, there was some fear involved. But I also want to tell you that when those kids came out of that, that changed their life. 
I'm, I'm frankly getting, getting my feel of watching Christians walk around with rhetoric and walk around making decisions based on fear of losing this or losing that or losing this freedom or this ability to do something. And we're operating and making decisions out of a spirit that God says He did not give us. He gave us a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind, not of fear. That's how these guys could go into Antioch and go into Philippi and go into Caesarea and go into these places knowing that they were waiting for them to beat them, to kill them, to persecute them. They went anyway because they're not afraid. And today Christians are walking around in fear because we've lost who we're looking at and we're a bunch of babies. And he says, grow up. Look what he said. You don't, you don't think he says that. Verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ, Jesus, about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings. And he makes this list. Can I, can I translate that for you into the vernacular? He says, We ain't doing the ABCs anymore. That's what he says. Move on past the ABCs. That's a decision, a volitional decision of the will. What does that mean? Everybody, it's New Year, everybody's reading their Bible. Everybody's on the new one year in a Bible program, I hope. I mean, do that. Read it. I mean, read it. But at some point in time, here's I get I get flack for this because I want to encourage Christians to go beyond reading. There's a difference between reading your Bible and studying your Bible. Because you can read it and not understand it. If, you, if your Bible plan says to read six chapters so that you can stay on track, but in chapter one, you don't know what in the world is happening, stop until you do. Make a phone call. Do a Google search for crying out loud. But figure out what is going on. One of these days, maybe I'll get to show you all some tricks on how to do that. But, but we want to go from just the consumption into the understanding. Why? What does all this have to do with our text? What does it have to do with Endurance. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, which is really, that was all introduction. We're in good shape. In Hebrews chapter 12, after we're, let's just say we've made the decision to move on. He says, train your senses. Um, can, I just, can I just be real with you for a second? I know this is on the internet and everything. Our family has been through some pretty dark days. In 26 years. Um, we've been through some really rough times. And frankly, had some of those this week. 13 years ago, almost 14 years ago, when my daughter was born, and we spent six weeks in the NICU with her, and y'all heard that story, that was not the time for us to begin to train our senses. That wasn't the time. What I needed then was to be able to pull money out of that bank, not trying to put money in it. So my encouragement to you is just like with Joseph. Before the famine, put the grain away. <laughs> Work while it is yet day. That's what that script... While you can still keep your head about you, get in here and study the Word, exercise your senses and your faith so that when you're called upon to need it, it's there. There's an academic function to that, which means you need to read and study your Bible and know what it says. There's also an experiential factor of that. That means you need to step out on faith from time to time and listen to the Holy Spirit of God to direct you and just do what He says. You're probably not going to know what's coming. 
We always spend time in training before we go into competition. My boys play ball right now, and they have this weird kind of a setup where the coach that coaches them in the ball games doesn't get, because of his schedule, to be with them in practice. How do you think that works out? It's difficult because he's not the one training them. He has to come in and try to figure out where everybody's at in pregame and then get out there and perform. As Christians, guys, we've got to be putting the work in now. Training our senses now because game time is upon us. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, let me, let me bring you up to speed in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the, the they call it the, oh, I just drew a complete blank. The, the heroes, like the, the, the heroes of the faith. Yeah, the hall of faith. That's what, yeah. The hall of faith. And they start listing all these people, but there's two distinct groups in here. Look with me in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 34 and 35. In Hebrews 11, 34 and 35, the Bible says this. It's describing these people. And it says, uh, let's just go back to 32 to, to get it all. He says, there's, there's, there's not time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Talking about all these people who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Their women received their dead, raised to life again. Stop right there and look at me. That's group A. The successful Christian life. Everything seems... Do y'all ever know people like that, that everything just seems to work out for them? Let's just be real for a second, can we? And you're like, I'm working just as hard as they are. And everything's falling into place. Does that just foster great loving feelings in you? It does it in me. It makes me envious, and it makes me prideful, and it makes me pout, and it makes me ask the Lord, but why? Yeah, you got to watch it. They're doing the deal. Everything seems to be working for them. But then look at this next group. Oh, you got to look at this next group. Same verse, next sentence. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mocking and scourging, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. And the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, on mountains, and hiding in caves and in holes in the ground. So you got two groups of people. They're in the same battle. Some people got it great. Others, they got sawn in half. James got killed by the sword. Peter got miraculously released. Why? That's the question we always want to ask. They did. Look at it. Brother's been reading his Bible. Look here. Look at verse 39. He says, all these, all these, all these. All these, all these. You understand what the word all means? It, theologically, it literally means all. Everybody. They were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Can I be honest with you? I don't want to be the guy hiding in the cave and in the hole waiting for the promise that I don't get to see. That's just my heart. I don't want to be that guy. But you know what? God may call me to be that guy. I want to be the Billy Graham 
that at least on the outside that they, that he described in the first half that their their women received their dead raised to life and they threw down strongholds and everything seemed to go the way i want to be that guy but that doesn't seem to be what god has called me to it seems that god has called me to really struggle some days more than others some years more than others god has called us to peer into dark places of humanity as foster parents that I wouldn't wish on Hitler himself. That's what God has called us to. But I hang on the promise that says all of them were approved through their faith. How do we do that? That's, that's, just, chapter, that's just the setup. I ain't even to my text yet. Y'all with me still? Chapter 12, verse 1. Here's the question. How do you endure? Verse 1. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. I, I'm going to tell this story. Oh, I hope David Hines, I hope you watch this. I'm going to have to tag you in this on Facebook. One of my mentors, David Hines, used to tell this story, and it's a good one, of a guy by the name of Gene War. He's a navigator. He's a disciple maker. And he used to do this thing where he would take three-by-five cards from people in the audience, and they would ask him questions, and he would answer them at the end of his talks, the old guy. And he got one, and it was from an anonymous guy, and he said, Dear Brother War, I said, I, I'm struggling with pornography. What can, you, what can I do to help with that? And he looks out at the crowd, and he holds the card like this, and he goes, Quit it, and throws the card and goes to the next one. That was his advice. Quit it. I look into the text, lay aside those things that beset you. He's the modern, quit it. Stop it. You know what God tells me to do with my anger? Stop it. You know what he tells me to do when I get irritated with people because they're not doing it my way? He says, stop it. You know what he tells me to do about eating too much? Stop it. You know what he tells me about not having unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Stop it. That's what he says. Stop it. How are we going to endure? Stop it. But there's another part of that. He says, lay aside the sin and the every hindrance. There's a difference. Some things may not be sinful, but they, Paul would say that uh, they're not prudent. They're a hindrance. They say, oh, it's not sinful, but it may not be a good idea. It may not be profitable. If it's in your way of becoming mature in Christ, stop it. Let's keep going. Woo, lots to do. And then he says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Can I, can I submit this to you? He doesn't say run with endurance the race that God set before Randy. Don't run with, race, with endurance the race set before the guy next to you, the lady next to you, the family in the next pew. Run with grace or with, with endurance, I mean, the race set before you. I went to a pastor's conference several years ago, and they always give you these little things to fill out at the end. What can we do better? What can we do better? And I want to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you what I told them. And I actually got a phone call from the director. Y'all ever heard of Right Now Media? The, the Brian Mo, uh, Mosley that, that started that calls me on the phone after I gave him this feedback. And I said, I'm going to tell you what I want to see in your pastor's conferences. All you ever put up on stage are these guys with mega churches, got 10,000, and all they're doing is telling me how to grow my church into, into being their size. 
I said, I want to go to a conference that has nothing but pastors with a hundred people or less who've been in the same podunk USA church for the last 50 years and they know how to endure and just do it. I want to know that guy. I want to hear from the guy who's working 50, 60 hours a week and still coming in to lead Bible study on the weekends. I want to hear from that guy. He actually called me and talked to me and I told him, I said, you're, you're asking me to run your race. I want some encouragement on how to run my race. Because my church had 50 people in it and the rest of the people in the town didn't even like us. I wanted encouragement in that race. And really I look into the scriptures and really the only encouragement I need is to remind myself that God didn't call me to run their race. God calls you to run your race. And he says, how do I endure? You endure with endurance. You put one foot in front of the other and run your race and stop worrying about the fact that your race is not somebody else's race. Run your race. Then he says, you keep your eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. And all God's people said, yeah, but what in the world does that mean? We got all these sayings we like to put on coffee cups, bumper stickers, and t-shirts that we wear to youth camp. Keep your eyes on Jesus. What in the world does that even mean? Because I'm, I'm a practical guy. Somebody, we, we get these questions, what does it mean to keep your eyes on Jesus? And I want to remind you what we just read. Part of keeping your eyes on Jesus means that you pursue becoming like Him. Well, what, was he, what is Him? What does it mean to be like Him? Isaiah 53 says it means that He bore sin and sorrow and hurt and pain and suffering. And He found Himself rejected and afflicted, loved by God in His crushing. That's what it means to be like Jesus. He learned obedience through suffering. He didn't avoid it. At, we, we, our culture thinks that the avoidance of suffering is the apex of our existence. And I would submit to you, according to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, the Bible says, if we want to know the power of His resurrection, we also have to fellowship with Him in His suffering. That's why when the, the disciples and the apostles would get the yogurt beat out of them in some city, they could walk away rejoicing. Because they knew, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. i got to jump. Look at verse 7. No, let me go back to verse 3. I can't do it. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Talking about Jesus. So that you won't grow weary and give up. Galatians 6, 9 says don't grow weary in well-doing, right? Brother was talking about this the other day. You could summarize Galatians 6, 9 like this. Don't quit. He says quit the sin... Quit the stuff that's in your way, but as far as the mission goes, don't quit. Just don't stop. One of the encouragements we were trying to give the, the body that was there Wednesday night was uh, you're, you're in a transition time. I know you don't have a pastor right now. Well, how do you, how do you navigate um, that space as, just as a church member? Don't quit. That's how. How do I continue to honor God when my family's falling apart? Don't quit. Just don't quit. When the whole world's falling apart and coming down on you, don't quit. When you know that you're... Jesus, how do I... Keep your eyes on Jesus. What does that mean? It says that for the glory that lay before Him, He endured the cross. And the Bible says it talks about in one part where He had turned His face toward the cross. 
That means he set his mind, his affections, and his intentions on the cross, but for the glory that lay before him, despising the shame. He knew it was going to be nasty. In the fact, in the garden, he actually asked God to stop it. You think he didn't feel weakness and want to quit in his humanity? He said, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. What cup? The cross? Not just that. The cup of the wrath and the, just the vengeance of God that was poured out on the whole thing. He said, can we do this some other way? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He said, I'm not going to quit. Keep reading with me in verse 4. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Can I, can I translate that for you? He's going, you're a lightweight. You think you've got it tough? He's saying, you're a lightweight. You've not yet resisted sin to the point of blood. You know, on the contrary, in, in America, we tend to just give in to the sin. Instead of laying it aside and it so easily besets us, we just jump in there and go, oh, well, here's the line. I'm not going to get damned to hell for this, so I'll just go right up to it. And we embrace it. And he says, no, you lay that aside and you get on mission and you don't quit. Well, I don't like the way sister so-and-so talked to me Sunday. So what? Don't quit. Maybe she needs a hug. Maybe she needs somebody to serve her. Well, she was out in the wrong. She probably was. So were the Jews that were killing Jesus when he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Don't quit. Don't quit the mission. Don't quit the mission. Oh, boy, we got so much to do. Okay. Let's just jump to number seven. Endure suffering as discipline. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes I'm studying the Word of God and stuff just jumps out on me. And which is one of those things earlier in the week God gave me. Because I've had a bad week. I've had a really bad week. One of the worst weeks I've had as a parent in 25 years. And I'm thinking, Lord, why am I suffering like this? And I got into the scripture and I read, he tells me to endure suffering as discipline. Yeah. And you know why that's important? Instead of making all of our children not have any suffering, and instead of avoiding all the suffering that comes to us, and here's why it's important. Look what it says. Because God is dealing with you as sons. If you weren't a son or a daughter, you wouldn't be disciplined. Which is more grave? To not be disciplined by God as a son or to be disciplined by God as a son? Where he says, I love you enough, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run you through the... Because look what he says. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not with sons. Frankly, I like the King James translation of that better, but I'm not going to use it in here because some people get offended by it. You're illegitimate children. I wonder how many churches across America today are filled with illegitimate children. Not being dealt with as sons and daughters of the Most High. Furthermore, verse 9, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. Parents, have you ever done something in disciplining of your children, thought it was the best thing ever, you do the right thing, and maybe a year, two, five, ten down the road, you look back and go, eh, probably could have done that better. Yeah. 
Maybe 10 minutes later, you look back and go, hmm. Yeah, happens all the time. And so he's like, we're doing the best we can, but look, he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but it's painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been what? Trained by it. Remember Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8? Train your senses. How? Don't quit when it gets tough. That's how. In fact, I would tell you double down when it gets tough. You're having a bad week? Just get the word out and start reading something. Where should I start reading? Somewhere between the front and the back. People, that's a great spot. People ask me all the time, where should I start reading? I'm a new Christian. And I usually send them somewhere like 1 John. Because that will wreck their shop. You know, if you haven't read the books of 1, just go read 1 John. If you haven't done it in a while. It will wreck your shop. I promise you. Because it puts some things into perspective for us. He calls us liars. I gotta keep moving. We gotta train our senses. Discipline is training. We gotta move, bro. What do we do? We train. We train. If you want to be successful, and here's the deal you've got to redefine what you see as successful in the kingdom of God. Successful in the kingdom of God is simply aligning yourself with who Jesus is and making yourself more like Him. That's success. And in fact, it's not even about you doing it. It's about submitting yourself to allow Him to do it because He's the only one that can do it anyway. That's what it means. Then let's keep reading in verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 12. He says, Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. Oh, I love that. You know why? Because I had knee surgery this week. I mean, this week, this, this year. And both of my knees are, are shot. My surgeon, I tore my meniscus in my right knee, went in to have it fixed. And you know, after the surgery, here's what my surgeon tells me. I don't like this guy. He said, oh, yeah, I got your meniscus fixed. He says, but it was unimpressive compared to the other damage I found when I got in there. <laughs> what? And then he says this, I can stop it, but I can't fix it. How much money did you charge me? And he said, yeah, you need to avoid the stairs. And I said, until when? Eight weeks, nine weeks? And he said, no, ever. I'm 46 years old, bro. I got a two-story house. Of course, I'm starting there going, that means I don't have to clean upstairs anymore. And then he said, he took an MRI of the other one. He goes, yeah, the other one's worse than that one. Do you want to go ahead and get it fixed? And I said, no, I've been off this thing for 12. No, you leave my knee alone, bro. You can't fix it anyway, remember? <laughs> so I read this. I'm seriously, I'm, I'm, this is going through my mind. I'm studying this. And he says, he says uh, strengthen your weakened knees. But you know what? He's not talking about my knees like that. You ever been so tired and so weary, you just kind of start doing this? Sit down in that chair at home. Oh, day's finally over. Life's beating you up. And you're not sure if you can do it again. When it says you're, look where it says you're tired hands. When you get tired, you just, I want you to get that picture. What do I do to endure? He says, strengthen your tired hands. Quit it. Get up. Do something. 
when I find myself getting into these situations physically where I'm just kind of feeling, y'all ever get in those days where you don't want to do anything? Yeah. Not that that's bad. There's Sabbath is needed. I'm just talking about an inappropriate lack of desire to do anything. The best thing you can do is get up and do something. The one, one guy, was uh, y'all, y'all probably seen it on the internet, there's a, a, some a military guy giving a, a graduation speech, and he said the best thing you can do in training yourself is to get up and make your bed every day. Because if the whole rest of the day goes to pot, you can at least say I accomplished one thing. Got my bed made. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Get up. Strengthen your... But here's the other part of it. How do you really strengthen... Guys, life is tough. Y'all notice that? Following Jesus is not easy. As a matter of fact, if you remember, we talked about this. Matthew 7 says, not only is the gate narrow, but the way is difficult. Can I just be real with you for a second? One of the most damnable heresies that we as a church in America and the Western world have sold people is, is that it's easy to follow Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. It may be simple, but it's not easy. In fact, he says, the way is difficult. It's the only free gift that will cost you everything. Because that's what he demands and requires. And will be satisfied with nothing less. So how do I strengthen my tired hands? You get around other people that are on the same journey as you are. That's why church is important. You encourage them. You be a Barnabas and you let them encourage you. And you identify the stuff and the sins that so easily beset you and you quit it and you lay on the side and you restructure your priorities and you start asking questions like, does this thing or that thing get me along my path to the mission which is to become like Jesus and make other disciples of Jesus? If it doesn't do that, get rid of it. Church, as a church, when y'all get together to make decisions... Somebody ought to be saying, does this or that move us on our path to creating, becoming and creating disciples of Jesus? If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I got into a conversation with a lady. We were remodeling our church one time. And the ladies were picking carpet. And it's not even a joke. You know, we like to talk about that. They, these two ladies got it in a hissy fit fight about the carpet kid you not and so they turned to me as the arbiter of all truth what do you want to do and in typical man fashion i said i don't care do purple shag carpet for all i care i don't care well then they got mad at me for not caring but i said i told him i said no 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 you don't understand i seriously it's not because i'm a dude I care about fashion. I'm an artist. I draw. I paint. I care about color and how things look. In my, I really do. But in terms of our church and the relationship, I told them, I said, I honestly don't care because it's just a building and it doesn't necessarily move us on our path to becoming and making disciples of Jesus. Because I've been to Nicaragua where they had dirt on the floor, no doors and no windows on what they kind of called a shanty of a building. And they had some of the most pure worship you've ever seen. They don't need carpet. And until we do without some things, I think, in the Western world, we're not going to appreciate how wonderfully blessed we are. And in fact, I think sometimes our blessings get in the way of our mission. I tell people all the time, if you can't worship with nothing, you'll never worship with everything. So what do we do? We strengthen them. Trial and affliction are there 
They make us weary and they make us gloomy. But they also make us strong. You ever done any kind of workout? Up until my knee surgery, my wife and I used to work out together every day. And I got to where I couldn't do it like I used to. I got to figure out a way to get back to that. But when we're lifting weights and things, you, do, you start small and you get stronger and then you get bigger weights. Y'all know how it works. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? They say, how do you lose weight and get in shape? Well, you eat fewer calories than you put out and you train, right? It's not really rocket science. A lot of books over it, and they all say the same thing. Eat less, exercise more. That's it. How do I exercise my faith? How do I train my senses? It's volitional. It means I've got to make decisions. You've got to be pursuing the things of the kingdom. A couple weeks ago I asked you, or maybe it was last week, are you looking for and pursuing the things of the kingdom? That's how you do it. Lay aside all this stuff that so easily besets us. What does that mean? It so easily gets us off mission, so easily gets us off course. It might not even be sinful, but it just might be in the way. Lay it aside. Maybe God would bless you and let you come back to it sometime. But until you get back on mission, lay it aside. That's how we endure. We don't quit. Verse 13 says, And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed. Let me, let me break that down for you and I'll be done. You ever try to carry something real heavy? Yeah. <laughs> Kids are like, yes, the lawnmower. But have you ever, if you pick up something real heavy and try to go in a straight line, what happens? You tend to, you're doing this, back and forth, fall over, wandering around. Look at that text again in that context. Look at that again. Make straight paths for your feet. In other words, there may be some burdens here that you need to lay down and let go of and lay aside because they're causing you to swerve. Don't do that because then look at what he says. So that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. Can I give you a real interesting application of that? I was out at the, out, uh, may have been, I was walk, taking you the, walking you to the car the other day after we had gone on a trip. And I'm walking back into my house. I mean, my knee is healed, right? I mean, it's, I'm fully released. I can do whatever I want to do, apparently, except climb stairs. And, I literally stepped on a little piece of mud and my leg shoots out and I catch myself in the most intense pain. And I thought, oh no, I've done it again. Because I stepped off my path and made what was good potentially lame again and bad again. He says, make your path straight so that what is lame is not dislocated, but it is healed. In other words, let me say it to you a different way. There's going to be people on your journey that are lame, that are not quite where you are. Hear me this morning. They're not on the same part of the journey that you're on. They're not quite there yet, but make your path straight. So that they will not be dislocated or completely ruined, but that they'll be healed. Oh, man, if I could just get that into my head, <laughs> that not everybody's where. And you know what? It's really easy also for me to do then. Oh, they're not like where I'm at. <laughs> just like that dude in the scripture. Thank you, God, I'm not like this guy. That's so easy for me to get into. 
Which is one of those things he would tell me to lay aside. Humble yourself before God. Make your path straight. Strengthen your tired hands. Let me just ask you this in closing this morning. Don't raise your hand, but answer this in your heart before the Lord. How many of you are tired? Tim, I said don't raise your hand. Tim raises his hand. He doesn't follow instructions well. I told a guy this morning, I was dropping my boys off at church and to go do what their duties that they have. and We got to talking. And he said, we had, we'd had a bit of a disagreement. And I told him, I said, can I just really boil this down for you, where I'm coming from? I look around the world around me. I look around people that I know and that I love. And there's something that grieves my soul. And that is, is that we, as professing believers, can unify around everything under the sun except Jesus Christ. We can unify around political parties. We can unify around structures. We can unify around church polity. We can unify around names and titles ad nauseum. I'm ready for the church of Christ the body of Christ, the church of the living creator God of the universe to unify and rally around the one mission that he gave us. One. You ever heard that phrase, you had one job? Guys, we've got one job. Make disciples. Be a disciple and make disciples. That's it. And he's like, whoa, I'm just not there. There's no way I could teach somebody how to follow Jesus. Then you need to be a disciple and be actively pursuing becoming a closer disciple of Christ. How do I do that, Brother Matt? Find somebody who's further down the road than you are and ask them to help you. And if they don't know what to do, then guess what? They need to be finding. And if you've asked everybody in here and nobody knows what to do, which I don't think will happen, call me or Tim and just say, we'll put somebody in your path. There's people. It, it can be done. But focus, focus, focus. Lay aside everything that so easily besets us. Focus on the mission. So the question we started with is, how do we endure? When it comes to sin and the stuff that's in our way, quit it. Just stop it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. What does that mean? That means anytime any suffering comes your way, don't lament it. Because here's the deal, it may be because of a decision you made and a consequence. You don't think that David carried the weight of all the wars that came to him for the rest of his life? You don't, we were talking about it on the way up here. You don't think Adam, after being expelled from the garden, carried the weight in his emotions and his mind that he completely ruined humanity? For a long time. He was alive for a long time and he got to think about it. He got to see what it was like in the times of Noah. When the earth was so bad that God had to destroy everybody except one family. You don't think he carried that? Don't quit. Don't quit. What do we do? Don't quit. <laughs> this is my favorite friend right here. It is. It's two words. Make disciples. Don't quit. Be like him. Guys, these are just simple instructions. That's why in our ministry we, we boiled it down to learn, teach, repeat. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. If you don't know enough to teach another person, you need to learn more. That's where you're at in the, in the, in the circle. 
Find somebody who will teach you. And if you don't, and I'm just like, what if I don't have anybody? The Bible says the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. Get alone with Him in this book, read it, and ask Him to show it to you, and He will. He'll wreck your shop, I promise you. Test me on that one. Just open the Word of God and pray, Lord, show me why, where I need to be more like you, and just start reading, and He will wreck your shop. Because that's what He does for children. When suffering comes, recognize it for what it is. The Bible says it's discipline. Because God loves you to treat you like a son or a daughter. Don't get mad at him. When my daughter was about to die, and we were taking her off the uh, ventilator the next morning when she was a baby, and I, I didn't think she was going to make it. I've told you all that story, but I remember going out in the pasture, and I was so, me and God have had some chats. But it was in that moment I'm going to be honest with you. I was mad at him. I thought it was unfair. And this came to me. I, in that moment, there was a lot of truth that he poured out into my soul by his spirit. And it was simply, he was saying, I'm not mad at you. You're my son. And I'm training you. You have work to do. So I'm telling you this morning, if you're going through it, he's training you. You have work to do. You have work to do. Don't quit. Stand with me. Father, we love you this morning. I want to thank you for people's attentiveness this morning to hear the message that you gave me. Oh, Father, help us not to be lazy this morning. Help us to not be stuck on milk because we're scared of what it's like to eat meat. Father, help us not to operate in a spirit of fear, but in love and sound mind, Father, that you gave us. Help us to strengthen. Father, would you strengthen our hands and our weakened knees? We're tired. Father, I pray and ask you today that you would absolutely pour your spirit on us so that we can see every bit of suffering that you give us. Whether we're in the group that everything great happens for or we're in the group that's hiding in caves. That our faith would bring us to what you have for us. God, would you please open your spirit up to us and help us to endure to turn our faces towards you as you turned it to the cross. Help us, Father, to keep putting one foot in front of the other that we may endure to the end because the path is difficult and the gate is narrow. Father, bring us by your sovereign will through that gate that we may know you, the fellowship of your suffering and the power of your resurrection. As the brother said, Father, help us to live like Lazarus. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are because you are good and you are righteous and you are holy. You are different. You are exalted above all things. You are the only one worthy to open the scroll. You are God and different. We lift you up and we praise you. I'm asking you to do what you've said and draw all men to yourself as we lift up the mighty name of Jesus as we pray. Amen.